Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help elevate the quality of leadership across the world and work with those leaders to co-create a thriving future. Our work includes assisting leaders in identifying the disruptive trends that are impacting them and developing strategies to transform themselves and their organizations to thrive now and in the future. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. Today, I am delighted that we're going to talk about democracy and referendum with Matt Vortrup. Matt is a professor of political science at Coventry University. He is described by the Financial Times as a world authority on referendums. He's published more than a dozen books on democracy and presented on the BBC program, How to Kill a Democracy. So Matt, welcome. What do you want to tell our listeners about your background before we jump in? Well, you pretty much uh, oversold me there. I mean, I'm obviously <laughs> pale to insignificance uh, at your achievements. But I, yes, I am a political scientist. I, uh, I was a lawyer in a previous incarnation. And it seems these days that law and politics sort of tend to go together, especially in your country. But that's another story. My, my interest is how to, to make societies better, really. And I think that goes through democracy and giving people responsibilities so they can take responsibility for their own actions so they can become responsible. Well, and your work is so foundational right now to what's happening in the world. What drew you to this area? Well, I think most of these sort of things happened by accident. In the 1990s, here showing my age when I was a student, I wanted to write about elections. And my, my supervisor in, in Oxford said, well, a lot of people have written about that. You should write about referendums and populism. That's a nice little area. It's not going to be that timely, but it's a good thing to write a PhD thesis about, which I then started to do. And then, of course, things, uh, well, I was about to say, then the rest is history. So I started out of, in, in a sort of academic way with an absolute pure academic interest. And then I realized this is a it's quite a scary thing with referendums. There are referendums are sort of a bit sort of like a Sergio Leone movie. They're the good, they're the bad ones, and they're the ugly ones. And recently in democracies, we've had more ugliness than we've had goodness. So for our listeners who are less oriented in the political space, what is the study of referendums. Can you fill in a little bit more background? Yes, the study of referendums is uh, in, in America, for example, you have ballot propositions. So at the same time as you have uh, presidential elections or congressional elections, you vote on a number of issues. So when you vote on an issue, that is a referendum. So they vote, voted in California a few days ago on whether Uber drivers should be given a salary or whether they're self-employed. Now that's mm -hmm. an issue where the people themselves decide an issue. And I try to understand why uh, certain countries, why certain states uh, allow the people to, to have that direct say. And then, uh, or why certain countries allow them to have that direct say. Uh, and then also, when do they vote for a thing like that? When do they vote against it? And what are the policy implications uh, of having a system where the people or a majority thereof decide directly on issues rather than transferring their decisions to elected representatives? And, you know, that has kept me rather busy in, in the past few decades. <laughs> and so you advise political campaigns as well? 
And, and governments. So I am in the fortunate position that this travels rather well in the times when uh, when you are allowed to travel. So uh, last year I was in Papua New Guinea, which is an island state above uh, Australia. And I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to, to go there and suggest how they could have a fair boat. I've also been involved in in boats all over the place, but including in in, uh, in America. So our audience is international. So we'll we'll be having a conversation with people from around the world, and depending on the topic, it is more American or less American. So what is your perspective on the state of democracy right now? You're writing about this during COVID, right? Yes, uh, uh, you know, you've got to have, I mean, I think uh, Shakespeare wrote King Lear when he was sheltering from the plague. Uh, I'm not quite at that level, even if Coventry University, where I work, is, is, is very close to Stratford-upon-Avon, where Shakespeare was. But my, my lockdown project, my quarantine project, is called uh, A Death, Death by a Thousand Cuts. And it is a book about the death of democracy, but it's a subtle, not happening too fast, sort of the bleeding away ever so slowly, so imperceptibly. Uh, of democracy. So I'm trying to write about the, I suppose it's throughout history, really, because there's always been a particular way in which democracies have died. It's, it's very rare that we have democracies that are overthrown by a military coup. Most democracies are overthrown gradually. Somebody gets elected, claims to speak on behalf of the people, and then gradually assumes more powers, will typically appoint judges, will claim to be more democratic than the other ones, but then with control over the state, when monopolized power, and then suddenly presto, you are in a situation where democracy is no longer if you go back to the Romans, Caesar Augustus actually gave citizens to all the people in peninsula of Italy. He said that they could even vote and then they would send the votes to, to Rome where he would be counting the votes and therefore, not surprisingly, would win. Uh, and we see that same pattern there. Uh, interestingly, in the, in the Roman case and in, in many other cases, many dictators, many despots or, or demagogues have started by saying that democracy is stolen. Franco, the, the later became dictator in Spain, uh, started his uh, political career by saying that the 1936 election in, uh, in Spain was, quote unquote, stolen. And then for that reason, obviously, uh, things have to happen. And I'm not mentioning any particular people who might have followed the same strategy. But I think we have to be, be concerned when we see these tendencies. I'm not in this world to have a particular point of view. I am in the world to, to describe things. Uh, I'm a political mm. scientist, but one of the mm -hmm. things that I'm dealing with is, is democracies or, or the demise of democracies. And what I'm merely pointing out is that history may not repeat itself, but there are certain patterns that are eerily reminiscent of what things we've seen in the past. And I think people ought to know that so that they can make up their own minds as to whether they want history to repeat itself. And so we're at the International Leadership Association conference do you have a particular message in the leadership space? Because we are recording this in the midst of the U.S. presidential election while we're still waiting for a final decision on who our president will be. And so it's an interesting time to be having a conversation and to be remotely attending the ILA conference. Yes, and, and I think one of the things that is interesting about dictatorship or demagogues or, or call it what you may, is that there are certain personality traits of those sorts of leaders. In a good leadership system, you have people who listen to experts. 
I think Machiavelli, the, the great Italian Renaissance writer, wrote in The Prince that the greatness of a leader is measured by the quality of his advisors. It wasn't gender-neutral language in, in 1490 mm-hmm. or when he wrote. <laughs> uh, but, but we can then, uh, her greatness of her leaders is the quality of her advisors, if you like. But the, and, and he also has a whole chapter called Warning Against Sycophants. So, you know, people who just say the right things. Uh, and the hmm. danger of having people who are of a more sort of despotic persuasion is that to their to their followers they gain legitimacy by saying well i have have god given powers i am the chosen one i am all of these things and therefore i don't need to listen to people i don't need to be humble because i know uh, what is right and i think that is the, the danger from a leadership perspective is that if you then have that view that you have a monopoly on power that you know all the right things whether it's on on, on tropical hurricanes hitting your country or or whether it's on COVID or whatever it is, then you close yourself off to the possibility that you could be wrong. Uh, and therefore societies tend to be worse if you have these authoritarian personalities, whether in dictatorships or in democracies. So from a leadership perspective, you need to have uh, leaders who are aware uh, that they may not be the brightest candles on the cake, but who are able to delegate powers out to other people. And then they would have a, an idea, a philosophical vision of where you want to go. Now, I, I know we don't want to just talk about the, the American examples because we are an international organization, but, but most people tend to, to know the American mm-hmm. examples. And if you take somebody like uh, like Ronald Reagan, who was a, a president, Republican president at the time when I was growing up, uh, then Ronald Reagan was was much uh, ridiculed for getting getting briefed on the golf course, and he would get little video VHR tape. It was <laughs> uh, with ten minutes briefings, and people say, "Well, that's about his extension span." And actually, what was interesting about Ronald Reagan was that Ronald Reagan had exceptionally good people to advise him, and then he would get the the sort of three bullet points from that because Ronald Reagan had a vision for where America was going to be, but he was he was willing to and humble enough to get delegate powers out. Ronald Reagan was probably by probably not the most intelligent president you've ever had, but he was aware of his lack of of, of intellectual uh, prowess, and therefore he was able to delegate out. Another American president, Lyndon B. Johnson, was was the same. He uh, said, "Well, I'm a I'm a big guy from Texas, and I need these people to advise me, but I have a vision for what America can be." And the same, I think, is true in if you look at great business leaders, if you mm-hmm. look at great sports coaches. Those are people who have the greatness, the, the, uh, they, they, they have the, the self-confidence to listen to people, to be able to, um, to take advice for those people who may have the right ideas. And we have a whole universe of, of ideas and nobody can know everything perfectly well. So I think from a leadership perspective, the reason why I'm interested in, in dictatorship is not I'm interested in, in, in its own right, I suppose, but the, the main sort of instrumental reason why I write about it is because these kind of systems where you have one individual who calls all the shots tend to be suboptimal, to use an economist's term, mm-hmm. because they, they assume that you have all the knowledge and you'd never have all the knowledge. You always need other people. So great leaders are the leaders who are humble, who are willing to listen, who are willing to delegate, and who have the ability to choose advisors who will, will support them and also speak truth to power. You know, as, as you're saying that, I'm looking at our leadership competencies, and I, I have not done any work in the political realm. My, my COVID project is writing a textbook for healthcare leaders. 
So um, slightly different arena, but we both chose to write books during lockdown. I know very little about the world of, uh, of medicine and healthcare, but I think if you're a great surgeon, you would be happy to, to accept the advice of other people. So I think it, it, it's regardless of whether mm. you're in healthcare or in oil or whatever you're in, you need to, to be open to, to the possibility that you might be wrong. Mm -hmm. So in fact, I'm looking at our list of competencies. The first is professionally humble. I know where I am not the smartest person in the room or in the industry or in the field. And these things are moving so quickly that good leaders must be willing to seek input from others. And also, and this is what really, as I'm listening to you from the political arena, being clear on my principles, the principles of the party and the principles I hold and living true to those principles, which connects then to the inspiring and vision. This is the vision we have. Then another is innately collaborative. So I have to seek input from others to ensure that the best outcome happens. Because again, Ronald Reagan didn't have all the answers and we certainly don't now in our more globally interconnected and complicated world. I couldn't agree more. But I think one of the problems uh, that we, we, we then have is that we would then have to ask ourselves, why is it that people that feel this urge to, to go for leaders who, who have that sort of personality? And I think that's, that's we think this sort of the, the next big issue because people often like to have, not, not to do too much really. I think the, the, the alternative to the sort of delegating all power to somebody uh, that is seen to have supernatural powers is, is very dangerous because you then, then you lose your influence. And I think what, what we should do really is to, to find ways in which we can be more inclusive uh, rather than exclusive. And people should, should also, I mean, this is not really a leadership point, it's more back to the democracy point. People need to, to become you know, responsible for their own lives and, and uh, responsible decisions. I think that's the headline to me is as busy as we all are living our lives and taking care of families and doing our work and staying healthy, that being a good political citizen, just an engaged citizen is foundational to a healthy democracy. And, and one of the things we, uh, for example, at the, at the International Leadership Association's uh, conference, one of the participants is from Mexico City, Greta Rios, who has been instrumental in setting up this participatory budgeting where ordinary people can decide on certain parts of the, of the social uh, security budget in Mexico City. It's not as if these people have massive resources, it's not as if any of them are economists, but they know that it's, it's their lives and therefore people in Mexico City are willing to spend time and actually are giving, given the, the opportunity to become responsible. And when they're given this opportunity to become responsible, uh, they are no longer irresponsible, they become responsible, literally, citizens. Uh, the same uh, system has been pioneered in Brazil also with, with great effect, where people feel that they're now part of life, they become much less uh, skeptical, they become much more trustful because they cannot distrust themselves. And being part of the process has, has then had tremendously good effects at the local level. Now, of course, there might be, be other sort of at the macro level uh, problems in both Brazil and in Mexico, but at the local level, and if, if, if all politics is, mm -hmm. is local, uh, that is an empowering situation that I think we, we need to find all, all those examples of where people can become empowered through certain institutional structures. 
So we started with your book and the, the chipping away at democracy. Do you have any thoughts on what helps us put those chips back? I don't know what the right terminology is, but if we're slowly losing that foundation, is it in service of something better or are we losing something that's really good in, and we don't even notice it? I, I think there's always a danger that you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I don't like this. And then you're walking away from me. I mean, that's most people in their private lives, you know, you get upset with your partner and you slam the door and then it takes months before you get make up again and make, you know, we, we always as, as human beings have this tendency to, to overreact and do things that we then uh, live to regret. It's just that it has immense consequences if you do that at the at the political level. In some ways, it would be foolhardy for me to, to say, well, there is a magic bullet that's going to solve all these problems. First of all, we need to be aware that history has, on, on occasion, rather repeated itself. I mean, there have been certain times where people have been trying to appeal to populist sentiments. They then get into power they then follow a particular pattern that seems to be pretty consistent across the board. So if we know what the history has been like before, then we may also be more likely to, to prevent ourselves from reliving history. So I think history, proper history, can actually be used in a, in a useful way. But then, of course, the other thing is that we, we can have to see when how did it work? Like if we take America as an example, yeah. it was interesting about a hundred years ago, there was a movement called the progressives. Now America at the time was a place where they had just in introduced um, instant communication technology. It was this novel thing called telephone. the telephone. <laughs> yes. Uh, where you could instantly communicate from, from one side of the country to the other. We didn't need the Pony Express or the stagecoach and all, and all the rest of it, or even telegraph. You could instantly communicate. It was a time where a, a lot of people skeptical of the elites they were skeptical of people getting filthy rich those were the people who built the railways and they were skeptical of immigrants with a different religion who sometimes were terrorists those uh, people of a very different religion were catholics from ireland and italy uh, but some of them of course uh, were quite violent and one of the things that happened in america at the time was that uh, America became more democratic. You started electing directly the senators. Uh, there were provisions for recall of certain politicians, which very rarely were used, but he was there as sort of as a as what Woodrow Wilson called a gun behind the door. Uh, and you mm. also had opportunities for, if you like, bypassing the legislatures if they were seen to be too corrupt. I don't know if we can just go back. I mean, but to, to that. But I think America, because America followed that particular route, America then stayed. With, with a number of caveats. If, I mean, if you were black in the South, mm -hmm. of course, it didn't count for you. But in, in those parts of America, in the North, in the West, that has always been uh, democratic, in not in a party political sense, but, you know, more democratic in, in the actual sense of the word, that, that, that country, that America, uh, stayed democratic, whereas other countries, Italy, uh, Germany, and so on, that started exactly at the same level around the turn of the century, uh, Argentina, for example, mm -hmm. uh, all of those countries did not introduce those mechanisms for empowering their own people. In all those other countries, because they didn't do that, they then fell prey to, to demagogues. So I think the, the way to, to resolve some of these problems is not for the people to elect demagogues. It is for the people themselves in different ways to take responsibility and find ways in which we can actually engage 
because it's very difficult. It's much easier to, to criticize the elite than it is to criticize yourself. Uh, and if you only have yourself to blame, you may be a little bit more practical about things, a little bit more open-minded and a little bit also mindful that things don't have a simple solution. Thank you. That's incredibly insightful as, again, we're in the midst of the counting process for our election and we had record turnout of all time. Now we have more people in the country, but we had record turnout. So there is the possibility that more people will be actively involved because of the divisiveness that's happened in the last four years. I think the divisiveness itself is, is, is not necessarily a problem. You need to have, you can't agree with people. It's good to have disagreement. There was a famous book by Samuel Huntington about American democracy called The Promise of Disharmony, saying, well, we can't mm. agree. That we, 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 but occasionally when they're really important issues, we will have to agree. And I think in, in some ways, I tend to be an optimist. I think the, the big question for, for America and the world at the moment is, is democracy a brittle twig? Or is it a bamboo stick that would flip back with vengeance if it's being if it's being bent? So either it's a twig that breaks when, when we try to bend it, or it's a bamboo stick that comes back with immense force when you try to bend it. So on that thought, we're going to go on break. <laughs> we are with Maureen Metcalf and Matt Vortrip, and we are talking about leadership and democracy and referendums at this point in time where across the world we are seeing our democracies tested. So we will be right back. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. We're talking to Mac Fortrup and Maureen Metcalf, and we're talking about referendums and democracy. Before break, Matt, you said, are we a brittle twig or supple bamboo? I am hoping that we don't end this interview with great depression and telling us that we have to just start over, that, that we are in fact bamboo. But please answer that question and why? Well, I think the, the, the most important thing is, is, uh, is, of course, whether we're one or the other. And if we are bamboo, then, I mean, even a bamboo can, can, can break. I mean, you can only bend it so, so much. Uh, I think uh, democracies tend to be bamboo sticks uh, or, or poles or, or whatever we call them. And I think the, the reason why we can't just say, oh, well, democracy broke down in Germany and in Spain, we're not seeing exactly the same. I mean, in Nazi Germany, there were more SS troops than there were policemen, and they were going around beating people up with impunity. There's nothing of the sort in, in any country around the world. Even the, the democracies that are being very challenged cannot be compared to what you had uh, in those days. Having said that, uh, so they're not twigs, as it were. I mean, they are bamboo sticks. But I think it, it, the stress test that we are, we're seeing at the moment, even that will have limits. I, I think that in some ways, uh, democracies uh, have hit back. And maybe I ought to say, well, democracy, of course, is not uh, a thing that is sort of like God-givenly right. I mean, uh, but it's just the reason for having democracy, the reason why democracies are, are worth fighting for is because they tend to give better results. I mean, democracies are richer, they're fairer, they are greener, they are uh, more socially equal. So on every single parameter, 
notwithstanding what they're saying in China and Russia, democracies work. Interestingly, in, in China, where there was a doctor uh, at the beginning of this year, at the beginning of, of 2020, when we were recording, uh, he, who said you ought to wear a mask because there's a thing called COVID that was in Wuhan in China. He was then hurled before a Communist Party tribunal. He was punished. He was uh, forced to swear in public that he had mm-hmm. been very naughty and saying that. Uh, then, of course, he died very terribly, very tragically. And as a result of the Communist Party's decision to, to say that they had all the answers, that they were infallible, as a result of that, literally millions of lives will have been lost and tens of billions of dollars will have uh, been squandered, which could have uh, been prevented if you just had a system where people have simply been allowed to say what they thought, what they meant, what they believed. So democracies uh, are well worth fighting for because they allow that diversity of opinion that enable us to correct ourselves. The, the fundamental thing about the system of democracy is that it's a system where we can learn from our mistakes, we can correct people. And Matthias Sen, who's a great Indian economist, won the Nobel uh, Prize of Economics, said that there's never been a famine in a democracy because the opposition party would just never tolerate that. If you take a country like India, India has been very, very poor, but there's never been a famine in India because there have always been opposition politicians who would say, wait a minute, you're doing this badly. And then people would be held to account. So democracies tend to be uh, efficient because they have, they allow the opportunity of, of correcting our mistakes. Uh, and it is for that reason that we need to to protect them. And, and also it might be for that reason that they tend to be uh, quite resilient from attacks because you need to chip away quite a bit uh, before a democracy breaks down, which is a positive thing. So at this point in time, not only in the US, but around the world, we're seeing populism and the opposition is becoming more virulent, stronger. Yeah. The, the yeah. divide is is more extreme. I hear you saying that that means it's also working. Is there a need to, to start to bring people back together to heal, to unify, or is the division actually a sign of health? Well, I, I think the division can be a sign of health. I think it's, it's, it's interesting that... Uh, that in dictatorships, of course, there is no opposition because you say we're all we're all in it together. Of course, you need to get together on certain things. And if you start talking uh, about your opponents as if they have horns and tails and uh, and they're evil and they're socialist or they're whatever they are, uh, that is really not helpful. I mean, at the end of the day, it is called the Commonwealth. I mean, certain American states and 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 in Britain, we I think it's in Virginia, for example. Yeah, I grew up in Virginia. It was the Commonwealth. Yeah, the Commonwealth of Virginia, and it's also it's it's a Commonwealth against uh, or versus somebody in court cases and things like that. In Sweden, if now we are being an international organization, they talk about uh, society, and the Swedish word for that is samhället, which is the thing that glues us together. Uh, the Swedes also talk about their society as the people's home, the home of the Swedish people. And that idea, it does not mean that people in Sweden don't argue. I mean, they argue a lot. They argue as angrily as they do in America. But the important thing is that there are certain things that is for the common good, for the commonwealth, for for the holding of society together, for the Samhelet. And I think those are the things we need to go back to. We have to say, well, we, we fundamentally disagree, but we all have to be here. 
in, in the Netherlands, uh, we now think of the Netherlands as being a society which is extremely um, tolerant and, and all the rest of it. But one of the things that is characteristic of the Netherlands is that there are some people who are completely secular and who live, uh, you know, some people call uh, Amsterdam the, the Sodom of the North, and it's, it's, it's sort of very much mm. in your face. At the same country, you have people who are extremely religious, who are, uh, you know, very sort of Protestant and so on, but they agree that they all have a common problem. They don't want to be overwhelmed by the North Sea. So much as they disagree on, on ethics and morals and so on, they need to agree to build the defences against the water. Also in the 1930s, they might have disagreed on all sorts of moral issues, but they needed to, to have a defence policy so they weren't going to be overwhelmed by the Germans. And I think we, we need to find a way in which we can identify the problems that we all consider to be of, of great importance and then work together on those and then gradually see what, what kind of compromises we can come up with, with on other issues. And, and I think the danger is that we become partisan for the parts of the sake of being partisan. And of course, we need to get together, but we, we don't need to get together just for, for the sense of, of healing and so on. It can be an empty phrase. Uh, we can't be divisive and find div uh, division. But having the, as I said before, the, the promise of disharmony or the system that has, in, in the American sense of the word, checks and balances where, where different little factions um, sort of cancel each other out. That is, that is a healthy thing. It is a healthy thing to debate. It's a healthy thing to have disagreement. But it's also a healthy thing to, to say, at the end of the day, we need to move on. We can't just talk about it. And we, I can live with this. I can live with that. Somebody defined a compromise as a solution that everybody is unhappy with. And I think we need to go back to, to that a little bit. And again, just being in the midst of the election in the US, that's, that is more on my mind. So it looks like we may have a Democrat president, a Republican Senate, and a Democrat House. So those checks and balances will be in place. Um, and we still have the court system that is non-political. So that sounds like, given your lens, it is a healthy place to start. Yes, as, as long as they're willing to, to, to work together and talk to each other. Now, a lot of people I've, uh, will be interested in, in, in other countries, and there's the grass is always greener, and people tend to, to look at other places. Uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago about the German Chancellor Angela Merkel, and she's sort of seen as a voice of reason. I mean, she's got mm -hmm. a, a doctorate in quantum physics and other things, you know, just for good measure. Uh, and, uh, but it's sort of seen as being a moderate. And what is interesting about the political system in Germany is that that is a federal system as well. No party has overall control. So it's a coalition government of two parties that are fundamentally and ideologically opposed to each other. But somebody has to make a decision. You have to get things going. So therefore, in addition to having divided government in Berlin, you also have to fight with all the states or not fight with the states, find a common ground, find a common solution to common problems. So if you are a mature person, then you sit down and you talk about, you find a way that you can all live with. If you're an immature person, you say, well, it is my way or the highway and I won't accept anything and it's, it's only gonna be me. 
and, and here in the United Kingdom, we have a system which, when I went to university, I was told that our constitution is like North Korea's, except we, we have elections every four years. I mean, obviously, that's a caricature. But the British system of government is one where we elect a parliament, and that parliament can do literally whatever it likes to do. There are no checks and balances. And because we don't have a constitution, we can't be unconstitutional. So you can get away with, with literally anything. Now, we have the good sense of, of not passing any legislation but not all politicians are like that. So one of the things in, in the, the German system, as opposed to the British system, is the German system forces people to compromise. And also, if you're forced to compromise, if, if you don't have a majority, then you're also forced to take into account other people's views. And if you take into account other people's views, then in the long run, you're all like to have, um, have social peace. But it requires you to to accept a number of things that are completely unpalatable for, for, for many people. And you, you have to say, well, compromising means that I will have to, to accept things that I really don't like, but they will have to accept it too. And it's that level of, of maturity that I think we need to refine. Uh, and that does not really help if you have politicians who do dummy spits and pretend or behave as if they're four or five years old, if that. So as we use terms like arc of history, and as I think about the decision we make today and how it will play out over a decade or a lifetime, that opens up for the opportunity to compromise because I'm going to have to live with it as are you, my mm. neighbor, community member, that, that it winning my way, if I look through the, the lens of legacy, looks very different than yes. I want to win because I want to win. Yes, I think you have to get out of the sort of like the playground kind of thing. Like it's, 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 it's if I don't, if I can't have all the toys, I'm not going to play with you kind of thing. Uh, but I think it's also about being grown up. There was a, a book recently by a man called John Kampfer, which was about Germany, which is called Tales from a Grown-Up Country. And the, the thing about the, the Germans, of course, were the fund, you know, the, the ones who were the, the most naughty, the most vile and evil in the past century. And they have learned it the hard way, but I think we should be, be careful not to learn. I mean, it's, it's, it's very important mm -hmm. that we, we actually do learn how we can have a, a grown-up debate, we can have a grown-up society. And that means that you have to compromise on, on certain issues. And that might be even issues that you, um, I mean, the, I think it's that the problem is that sort of mentality of over my dead body, am I ever gonna accept that? The founding fathers, and sadly they were all fathers and they were all white, by many of them slave mm -hmm. owners. Yeah. Uh, so th uh, I'm not in any way saying that they don't have problems, but, but those people, notwithstanding some of the, the problems that they had, were mature individuals who realized that we, have to find compromises. We have to find a system which does not allow one particular side of politics to bully or boss the other side around. And when somebody like James Madison was, was writing in the Federalist Papers about that, a, a series of articles that were published in New York uh, in support of, of, of what was then the new constitution. And a lot of people did not like the constitution then because they say, no, no, we need a system with, with a strong person, a strong power who can get things done. Now, the problem is that it's very good to get things done if you have all the right answers. The problem, the fundamental problem, a fact of the matter is that nobody has all the right uh, answers. Nobody knows everything about science. Nobody knows everything about economics. And even those who are experts need to be corrected. So therefore, it's much better to have a system where we can have that sort of 
if you like, uh, beneficial kind of opposition, the, the disharmony that only urges us to, to come up with better arguments. You know, we talk about dialogue and, uh, and democracy and all of that. And for, for the Greeks, who were the first ones to have a democracy, for them, democracy was not just voting, it was also debate discussion. Uh, and the argument was that, that you might start the debate with one particular view, and the other side will have another view. And then through the debate, uh, and I think the Plato, who's of course one of the famous writers and critics of democracy, says it's a bit like you're robbing two pieces of wood together. At the beginning, it's just two pieces of wood, but then the fire will spring out of that. In the same way it is with, with, with democratic debate, we, the two different sides of the argument will produce something which is, uh, will produce a spark in fact. Uh, literally and and produce flames that we could not foresee before so we have to embrace the disagreements we have to work constructively with our disagreements so as to overcome them so as to come to a higher level so as to to improve the world and i think there is a possibility that might happen it does describe a different mindset than i hear right now i i fear you're right uh, i fear that uh, uh, I, I think somebody like Mitch McConnell will have to have a, a bit of tuition uh, from me, uh, which I've, I've, <laughs> Mitch, if you're watching, uh, just uh, you know, just <laughs> ring me anytime you can find me. But 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 equally, I think there are other people who who may need to have the same level or, or go to the same classes. We can probably have sort of group therapy for <laughs> them. You know, I'm. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are on the other side of the argument people who are equally unwilling to yeah. compromise. But I think it, it, it's, and that's part of why we need to have civics, why we need to have, uh, well, we need to go back to actually the roots of what is it to be uh, living in the Western civilization. It's always been the case, and a lot of people say, well, there are all sorts of bad things about Western civilization and democracy and so on. Well, one of the things that's fundamental about the period that started off the Enlightenment was that people were willing to doubt. The fundamental thing about our society is doubt. You know, if you want to be philosophical about your Descartes, you ought to doubt everything. Uh, was his sort of like his strapline in the great between sixteen and sixteen thirties, and that idea about doubt, that idea about having different, it was also Protestantism came in at the time that you don't have one particular point of view, and that you have uh, constructive criticism, constructive doubt. That is the, the the thing that has brought societies forward. Science has grown as a result of, of trial and error. We knew Newton was right, then Newton wasn't quite right, and then you had quantum physics coming in. I know very little about this, I have to say. But, but, but everything we, we, we've done, we've done because we have been willing to, to test our opinions mm -hmm. and kind of get out of the 14th century, which we've sort of like fallen back into, which is sort of like the time of the, um, or, 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 literally the Dark Ages. It's interesting, actually, just if, if now that I'm on a roll here, and maybe you can just correct me and stop me uh, forcefully if I'm wrong. When we talk about the Renaissance and all of these things that we mm -hmm. put for us, it's, it's just paintings nowadays. Uh, there was a great man in those days called Pica della Mirandola, which is a wonderful Italian name. And Pica della Mirandola wrote a, a book called The Dignity of Man. And writing there in the 14th century, he said, well, the reason why I believe in the dignity of man is because I've been willing to learn from, from the Arabs. Oh, he calls them the Saracens, but that's the, the, mm -hmm. the people. And in those days, when, when Renaissance Italy really took off, when you had Michelangelo and, 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 and all the rest of them, mm -hmm. yeah. they, they became a great society because they were open to ideas from other places. They were willing to, 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 to learn from other places. Mm -hmm. 
and most of what they had actually learned, they'd learned from from the Arabs. I mean, they did, they of course weren't Muslims, they disagreed with them, but but great, great leaps forward in time have always come at times where people have been willing to criticize. The greatest moments in art history, uh, if we go, that's the Greeks, they had a democracy, the Dutch Rembrandt, Van Hals and so on, lived at a time where you could debate things, where there was an open debate, where there was openness and, and, and room for disagreement. So, so all good things fundamentally go together. So, so all the great, so all the Western societies and, and all the other societies need to embrace disagreement. They need to embrace critical thinking. They need to embrace critical rationalism and they need to embrace above all openness that to other people's ideas. When we get back to that, we're on a roll again until we rediscover those uh, fundamental values of the Enlightenment, we're suffering a setback. And, and the, the danger is that setback sends us all the way back to the Middle Ages, because we have to remember that after all the Greeks and the Romans and, and, and all the rest of it, we had the Dark Ages for a thousand years. So what I hear then is that this dissonance can then fuel something that would be like the Renaissance, if we are open to embracing the, the different points of view rather than trying to bludgeon them out of existence. And one yes. of the things we talk about in leadership is the leader has to embrace the mind of the scientist, that current leaders to be effective have to certainly identify the biggest problems, develop a hypothesis, and rather than believing they will have the answer they have to continue to test their answers, especially because they're solving multiple problems at the same time. And we always will going forward because of the pace of our world. So the good leader does look like a scientist than a command and control leader that, that built much of what we see right now. Yes, except I think we'd, I would probably want to, to more embrace the sort of experimental artists in some ways, because sometimes okay. scientists are, are, are stuck in their ways. I think one of the problems with science is that uh, I think it's called paradigms within science. You only think within the, uh, the paradigm. So if you're a physicist, then it's, it's, mm. it's quantum mechanics and all of that. And you don't think ah, that's beautiful. So I think the, the, uh, the, the, the ones I would want the, the, the great leader to take notes from or, or learn from are the people who, who completely uh, you know, throw themselves into a different mold. And I think it's more likely to be the scientists who will try completely crazy new things. So we need to be much more improvising. I would rather be uh, less, less Albert Einstein and more Charlie Parker. Okay, so tell me, and we've got uh, like two minutes to wrap up, but who is Charlie Parker and why that? Charlie Parker was a great jazz musician. He was actually, as a human being, he was a particularly nice one, but he was somebody who oh. always talked about the element of surprise. He, he said, well, my music should always be the note you don't anticipate will come up because then it's new, then you get excited about it. Uh, and I should try things. And Charlie Parker, uh, as although he was a jazz musician, uh, African-American, he would be uh, immensely inspired by, by classical music. He would be open to that. And he would be open to thinking about literally anything that could inspire his music. He'd sadly died very young. He wasn't just thinking inside the box. In fact, he was just chipping away at the edges of the box, trying to get out all the time. And, and if we can have that innovative spirit, if we can have that thinking about things that, that can be new, that to cast ourselves in, in a different mold, that is the, the best way forward, I think, for leaders 
and for jazz musicians and for scientists. Beautiful. So as we close, uh, again, we are globally navigating populism. We are watching dramatic shifts. And I feel hopeful after talking to you about the idea of novelty and that the dissonance is actually healthy and part of a resilient system. Is there anything you would like our listeners to absolutely take away as a key point from the conversation? Well, I would like to quote the German playwright Bertolt Brecht, who said in, in a play, fortunate the countries that have great leaders and great heroes, but more fortunate the countries that don't need heroes. So I think it's great to have heroes and idols we can look up to, but the most fortunate places are the places where people don't have a need to have a leader and to follow them, where they do it themselves. Beautiful. Thank you. This has been quite a joy and... Thank you to the International Leadership Association for putting us together and creating an opportunity for this conversation. And likewise, it's been an honor and a pleasure.